So hey, how about the, uh, the sporting event yesterday? She didn't even know which one I was talking about. You're obviously cheering for the UVA men's basketball team, right? But believe it or not, what I was referencing was the women's 10-miler. The women's 10-miler. And um, whenever I think about that event, I praise Jesus, I was born a man. <laughs> Everyone can run. My excuse just died in the face of truth. Are there any people in here that you ran the 10-miler? Please stand. Go ahead and stand. Come on, stand up. If you ran the 10-miler, let's give them a hand. Congratulations. You may be seated. And I figure anything over about 200 yards. That's why God made cars. How many of you agree with me on that one? But no, seriously, congratulations. That's an incredible feat. I know that uh, my wife ran the 10-miler many times and just did it. It's, it's an incredible, incredible thing to be able to run 10 miles. Uh, it's not on my bucket list at all, ever, never going to happen. So, listen, um, this morning is Palm Sunday. And uh, on Palm Sunday, we celebrate together the triumphal entry of Jesus as king into Jerusalem. It's an incredible, incredible event. And yet what I want to do this morning is somewhat different. I woke up, I get up very early on Sunday mornings, and I was working on the whole concept as I have been all week about the triumphal entry and just felt so convicted in my heart to shift gears. And it's not that we're not going to talk about the triumphal entry, but the angle that I had all week, God kind of prompted in my heart to change. And so what we are going to talk about, though, is the triumphal entry. We're going to be talking about Easter in the context of the death, burial, and resurrection. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, just so you know, theologically, the death, burial, and resurrection are one thing. You cannot separate them. Easter is not sort of the end of that. Easter's the entire episode of Christ as the compass of his ministry and of his life moves towards Jerusalem. And he goes through the triumphal entry, which is kind of that last puncture into Jerusalem where his death and his burial and resurrection become a guaranteed thing. Now in that, I almost want you to picture Easter, death, burial, and resurrection, those three parts, as a day where we talk about the morning, we talk about noon, and we talk about night. They're so connected, and the same is true with Easter. Easter's not just the resurrection. It's everything that leads up to that, which again involves Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now on this Palm Sunday... I am going to speak about the triumphal entry. What I wanted to talk about was the power of the image of the triumphal entry. For those of you who don't know, Jesus' triumphal entry was actually taken from a Roman activity. 
If you were to Google triumphal entry, you would discover that it is a Roman practice. When a Roman general has conquered a people, that Roman general, with the permission of the Senate, would move into the capital city of the people that he had conquered. In front of him would be those that he had conquered. Many of them would have their eyes gouged out. Many of them were in a parade in front of him. Many of them would be sold into slavery. They would become slaves. And that's what the triumphal entry looked like in the Roman Empire. This general would move into the conquered capital. And as he did, his troops would be behind him. His captives would be in front of him. He would be riding on a chariot with four charging stallions in front of him. And it was a show of power and authority and might. Let me tell you, when Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is called that, when it's called the triumphal entry, if you were in the city, it would have looked nothing like any triumphal entry you had ever seen. Instead of being in a chariot with four charging stallions, he's riding on the baby of a donkey. In front of him, instead of the people with eyes gouged out, people that are chained together, people that will be executed or sold into slavery, the people in front of Jesus are the people he set free. And the people with him are his disciples. What a different image than the Roman triumphal entry. What I want to say to you, and then we're going to move to the points of today, is this. Trust me, when you're in trouble, you want a king who is gentle and humble and kind. You don't need a military king because we live in the freest country in the world and people are still in bondage and they live in cages, and they are anything but free. We need a king who comes in stumbling on the foal of a donkey, and he is touchable and knowable, and you can approach him. And when you do, you join the parade in front of him, not in captivity, but as a free person, as a free woman, or as a free man. That's the triumphal entry of Scripture. Now, since I kind of told you a 45-minute sermon in two minutes, we're going to move into what God impressed on my heart this morning. And as we look at Palm Sunday, we look at the triumphal entry. I want to process through it from a very different way as we move towards Easter. What you'd have to understand is that the triumphal entry and Easter begins all the way back In Matthew chapter 16, Christ's triumphal entry happens in chapter 21. But you see, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus makes an announcement. And the announcement is this. He explains to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he will be killed. And on the third day, he will rise again. Every single gospel has that turning point within it, all four. Or all four gospels have a definitive point where Jesus makes an announcement that he's going to go to Jerusalem to die. And the tone of the gospel switches in all four. In a couple of the gospels, almost half 
of the entire gospel happens after Jesus makes the announcement that he's going to Jerusalem to die. But in the gospel of Matthew, it happens in chapter 16. And then in chapter 20, Jesus makes an incredible announcement where he says that he has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And chapter 21 is the triumphal entry. In Matthew chapter 26 is the Last Supper. And that's Maundy Thursday. That's what we're going to celebrate this coming Thursday night at City Church Central at 7 o'clock. We'll gather together to take a look at the Last Supper and see what he taught his disciples in that last fateful, fate-filled meal that he ate with them. And then at the end of Matthew chapter 26, you move into the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is crucified. And in Matthew chapter 28, he is raised from the dead. In Matthew chapter 28, so from chapter 16 all the way to chapter 28, 12 chapters, Jesus Christ is on a death march to Jerusalem. Now as we look at Easter... And we look at Palm Sunday. I felt so compelled to teach on what I'm going to teach on this morning. I realized that if I was going to speak about Easter, that I could not do it unless I talked about the things that I'm going to talk about this morning. What we understand is in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus predicts his death. If you were to read Matthew 16, 21, here's the key points. They're up on the screen as he predicts his death. Here's what he says. He says to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus knew exactly what God had called him to do. And you have to understand that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection wasn't happenstance. It wasn't a mistake. Jesus knew about it. Jesus announced in all four Gospels that he's heading to Jerusalem to die. And so with this in mind, I want for us to look at the triumphal entry through a different lens. To look at Easter through a different lens. And here's what God put in my heart for my own life and for yours. First of all, it's this. I cannot speak of Easter unless we talk about obedience. We can't talk about Easter unless we talk about Easter or obedience. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, we see that this obedience literally comes to a head for Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's kneeling before his father in prayer. And here's what is uttered from his lips. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Obedience. Easter is Easter because of obedience. And if Christ is my example... And as followers of Jesus, our goal is to follow him. Then obedience is something that's a part of my life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's a part of your life as well. And here's what I know. Obedience is a cultural swear word. It is. 
No one wants to obey anyone or anything. The truth of it is, is if your human nature is like mine, when I hear the word obedience, I say, no, thank you. When someone tells me to do something, I try to think of reasons why not. If I see a door that says, do not enter, and one that says, come on in, guess which one I want to look behind? You're like me. But there's something about Easter that speaks directly to us about obedience. I cannot speak on Easter without talking about obedience. Can't do it. You see, Jesus knew what God had told him to do, what he'd been called to do. It involved going to Jerusalem to die. He was obedient to that. And thank God that he was. But what I noticed in Scripture as I thought about obedience is when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, the Bible tells us, maybe you've never read it, but before Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he goes out into the desert and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Good grief, I can't even miss lunch without complaining, let alone 40 days, 40 nights. But Jesus fasts for those 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that, the Bible says the devil appears to him, the adversary of our soul appears to him and tempts him with comfort and tempts him with an easy way to redeem humankind. The temptation was this. Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. The temptation was to rule the world without any death, without any suffering. Satan says, Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms. Just worship me. It's a shortcut. It's a Christianity that has no cross. That's what Satan offers Jesus. Jesus says, no, thank you. Rebukes the adversary with scripture and steps into his earthly ministry. And three and a half years later, he finds himself on a cross. Here's what I know. I know that obedience is an act of the will. It's a choice. And what I know in my own life is when I know what God desires of me or calls me to be or do, that my flesh 99% of the time says, no thank you, don't do that. My flesh says, Pete, if you're obedient to Christ, you're going to look like a fool. People will think less of you. My flesh says, do it differently. Don't be obedient. And yet I cannot speak of Easter unless I speak of obedience for you and for me. Because Easter is all about the idea of obedience to God. Here's the problem. If you look at Jesus' ministry, his obedience to the cross is a continual thing. It's not a one-shot deal. The issue comes up again. It starts at the beginning of his ministry as he is tempted in the wilderness. And then it shows up again in other spheres and other conversations. But it comes to its apex in the Garden of Gethsemane where the Bible tells us in a different gospel that he is so stressed with what's coming that there are droplets of blood mixing with his sweat as the stress becomes overwhelming and overbearing to him. But he utters those words, not my will, but your will be done. 
It's obedience. And what I would say to you is I often say to myself, there are times where life just seems to get overwhelming. And when it does, do what you know God has told you to do. Be obedient. Because at the end of obedience is resurrection life. You don't get resurrection without obedience. Doesn't happen. So I cannot speak of Easter without speaking of obedience. The next thing is this. I cannot speak of Easter without also talking about suffering and death. You're going to say, gee, Pete, I thought this was the triumphal entry. I wanted to come to church and be jazzed up and be excited. And you're talking about obedience. You'd say, I'd rather die than be obedient. Now we're going to talk about that too. Suffering and death. Here's what I've always appreciated about Christianity. Christianity does not deny how hard life is. Never does. And when you look at the triumphal entry, when you look at Easter as a whole, what you recognize is God steps into suffering and God steps into death and identifies with us through the very worst. Christianity does not deny that life is difficult. And on Palm Sunday, what we fo focus on is the triumphal entry, the victory, the apex. But within mere hours, Jesus will be suffering and he will be dying. And so if you've experienced the highs of life and the lows of life, welcome to Jesus. He's experienced it too. There are faiths. And there are also approaches to Christianity that are absolutely unbiblical. Those approaches tell us to deny our suffering and to deny death and to kind of overlook it or to turn a blind eye or wish it away or to pretend like it's not happening. You see, when you look at the triumphal entry, you see the best of life. When everyone's cheering your name and you're at the top of the hill, but then there's also death, and there's suffering, and Jesus moves through both within a few hours. I like that, because truth of it is, I'm not interested in a God who has not entered into suffering. I want a God who has suffered the human life. Now, as we look at this, and as we think about this, and I was kind of this morning contemplating the week that I had just been through. This week was a, a great week for me. I was able to tick something off my bucket list. How many of you have a bucket list, things that you want to do before you kick the bucket? You have that? I have a bucket list. And I wrestled when I was a child ever since second grade. We wrestled. I wrestled all through high school. Uh, it wasn't good enough to wrestle in college, so you get the understanding of my illustrious career. What they call it was looking at lights. I looked at lights a whole lot when I wrestled. <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying? When you are on your back looking up, what do you see? You see lights. Most sports, when you see lights, that's a good thing. Not in wrestling. If you see the lights, it's a bad thing. 
I saw a whole lot of lights when I wrestled. But one of the things in my bucket list was to go to the NCAA National Wrestling Tournament. And Steve Garland, who came to faith at City Church, is the head wrestling coach at UVA. And he's invited me for years to kind of travel with the team. And so this week I did. So I traveled with him and we went up to the Madison Square Garden and I saw three solid days of wrestling. Some of you are going, yuck. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I'll tell you what one of the highlights was that was shocking to me. Last year's NCAA wrestling coach from Ohio University gave a talk. So the room was packed because coaches are there and there's some wrestlers that are there because they want to hear what the national uh, coach of the national championship team has to say and how he went from Hofstra where he had a great career, moved to Ohio State and ended up winning the national title. He's one of these guys who's just a coach's coach. And so we're at this breakfast and people are in this room and they're here to listen to what this coach has to say. You know why they're there? It's because he's successful. Success is attractive. When you meet a successful person, the question often is, how do I become successful like that? And the hope is, is that in his 25 to 30 minute talk, he'll kind of peel back the onion and you'll figure out how to be a great wrestler, a great wrestling coach. And he shared some pointers. But then in the middle of his talk, he shifted gears. In the middle of his talk, he talked about when they left Hofstra to go to Ohio State, and it's probably one of the best-paying wrestling coaching jobs in the country, if not in the world. He makes this move. But he talked about what happened just before he moved. You see, he had four children. And the year that he was transitioning from Hofstra to Ohio State, he tells the story of his five-year-old son. His son died of a heart attack in his arms. And he talks about being there eating with his family. And all of a sudden, his five-year-old son grabs his chest and falls off the chair. And he was dead before he hit the floor. And he talked about what it was like for 20 minutes doing CPR on your five-year-old. There were no signs. There was nothing in his life that ever indicated he had a heart problem. But he shared that story. And then he talked about how through that death and through that suffering, he turned his heart to God. How all of a sudden, he realized that there was something missing in his life. He could kind of be the national coach of the year in his own strength. But when he faced the death of his son, he said that was the hardest thing he had ever done in his life. And he said what he ended up doing was beginning to dig into Scripture to find out who Jesus was. And it wasn't long after that that he gave his heart to Christ. You could have heard a pin drop in the room. I'm going to tell you what the transition was. It dawned on me as I was watching this. Everyone was in there. And they wanted to learn about success. But you know what the truth of it is? Learning how to make it through death and suffering is more important than success, trust me. It is so important to understand that suffering and death are part of this world, and yet there's a God who through his son experienced every bit of it. His son went through suffering, and his son went through death. I could promise you 
that every person that was part of that talk as they exited that room to this day, if you ask them what they remembered, it was his talking about suffering and death and how he made it through it. It wasn't the few pointers about how to be a great coach. The life lesson, the lesson that all of us are called to learn is what do we do during suffering? What do we do when we face death? What I have found is that Christ is there. In those moments, if we turn our heart to him, he is there. And I will also tell you that ultimate success is never enough to conquer suffering and death. It isn't. It always falls short. And here's what I've learned. There is no resurrection life without suffering and without death. There must be death before there's a resurrection Otherwise, resurrection can't happen. Suffering and death always precedes resurrection life. Always. But here's what I know. That if we square up honestly to Scripture, and we square up honestly to Jesus, then all of a sudden, everything you've ever suffered now can be used for good. And if you square up to Jesus in the midst of death, here's what I will tell you. You will see your loved ones again. You will. That the resurrection comes out of suffering. The resurrection comes out of death. Those are the things we want to avoid. But when we go through them and we face Christ on the other side of them, there is life on the other side of suffering and death. If you don't view it that way, here's what I will explain to you, is that suffering becomes an end to itself, and death is an end to itself. There's no resurrection after suffering. There's no resurrection after death. They are an end to themselves, and life lived that way is miserable. But when we step into these with Jesus, we understand that what I have, whatever I have suffered, God will use it for good. And even if I face death, mine or other people's deaths, here's what I know. That in Christ, there is life after death. And someday, resurrection will hit where death has seemingly conquered. That's how it works. That's how it works. And last, but definitely not least. I cannot speak of Easter without talking about others first. I cannot speak of Easter without talking about putting others first. Matthew chapter 5 verse 46 says this, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Again, I can't speak of Easter without speaking about others first. Here's why. What Jesus did with his death, his burial, and his resurrection is for everyone. It's for everyone. Anyone can look at the cross and look at Easter and by faith say yes to it. Anyone can. And if Jesus did that for everyone, 
then I'm called to love people that I find quite unlovable. Now let's push the pause button. Can you think of someone right now that fits the definition of unlovable? Raise your hand. Now point to them. They might be right next to you, that person right there. Jesus says, what is it if you love those who love you? Even pagans or heathens do that. You see, there's a standard in the kingdom of God that finds its fullest expression in Easter. That in Easter, Jesus is suffering and he's dying and the people that are torturing him, those are the ones he's dying for. He's not just dying for good people that love him. He's dying for people who hate him. And so when you think of Easter, please understand, it's a shot across the bow. It's a cheer for this. That we are a group of people, if you're a follower of Jesus, where others come first. Let me put out a little challenge for you. Some of you are followers of Jesus. God has blessed you. You've seen incredible success. Incredible success. But you feel like even in the midst of God's blessing and the success you've experienced, there's still kind of an emptiness. I want to encourage you to do something. Look at your success. Look at your blessings, whatever they are, whatever they look like. Gather them together and say, okay, Jesus, how can I use these to serve others? And what you'll find is there will be an incredible joy where right now there's kind of an emptiness. Even though you identify that as God's blessing, even though you identify that as God's goodness, it's when we use it for others and we bless others with us that the fullness of what God has done in us really comes to its fullness. Otherwise, a blessing, a strength, God's best for us becomes like a stagnant pond that implodes and devours itself. So the idea then with Easter is that Christ does this so that he can keep others first. What a lesson there is in that for you and for me. The last point that I'm going to make is going to be part of communion. So I'm going to ask that you would grab the communion cups that you were handed if you do not have one, please raise your hand. There are people now that are prepared to bring around the tray and they will serve you. Keep your hand raised and don't be shy. They will bring you the communion elements. If you have your cup or if you don't yet, please stand, but keep your hand raised. Please stand with me. And as we stand together... I want you to go ahead and open up the communion cup. If you're like I am, we've got an individual right down front that could use communion, right down on the front row. If you're like I am, you better start trying to open this now because it's going to take you three or four minutes to get the thing open so that you'll be ready to take it when we're ready. But the last point is this. I cannot speak of Easter unless I talk about me or I talk about you. The question has to be, what is my role in Easter? What role do I play? 
even though it sounds a lot like back to the future, you had a role to play in what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. You know that? Scripture is very clear. Good biblical study teaches us that when Christ was on the cross, he took on him not only the sin of the people that had already lived, but you and me. You and I participated in the execution of Christ. My sin, your sin, caused him to be obedient, caused him to suffer, and caused him to die. You see, I had an effect that reaches back through history and caused Jesus to do what he did. I was one of the others that Christ put before himself. I was one of those. And so I have a role to play in Easter. I have a role to play in his death. I have a role to play in his burial. And he allows me to have a role to play in his resurrection. You see, I'm involved in Easter whether I want to or not. Because Pete Hartwig is a sinner. And I need a savior. You see, Pete Hartwig is not always obedient. Pete Hartwig oftentimes flees from suffering, and I don't want to face death. Pete Hartwig often does not keep others first. And because of that, I need this bread, and I need this cup. I also need the one who doesn't and didn't do what I do. I need the one who is obedient, even though he wished he didn't have to be. I need the one that suffered and died. And subsequently, because he did, he was resurrected. I also need the one who keeps others first. So as we take communion together, I'm going to ask that we would take just a moment and close our eyes in God's presence. That if you would, with me, just kind of hold the communion cup up before the Lord. And as we hold the cup up, Let's pause. Let's ask ourselves this question. How am I doing in these areas of my life? How's my obedience? How about suffering? How about death? How about others? How am I doing with that? Where am I at with that? Jesus now, I pray for a triumphal entry in our hearts. I pray for that in this moment. I pray that as we take communion, that the areas of our lack of obedience would be brought under Jesus. I pray that our sufferings and even facing death would be brought underneath the resurrection of Christ. God, for those that we know that we're called to serve and put first, if we haven't been, Jesus, we confess that to you in this moment. Lord, we surrender to you in the face of your triumphal entry, your obedience, your suffering, your resurrection from the dead. Here's what Paul writes to the church of Corinth. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, 
On the night he was betrayed, on the night that he would suffer and die, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he kept others ahead of himself. And he said to them, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's hold the bread up before the Lord and let's give thanks. Jesus, thank you that you were obedient. Thank you that you were obedient to the point of death on the cross. And Jesus, as we hold this bread up, we are reminded of what you have done for us. But we are also reminded of the resurrection, of the hope of which this bread speaks. Lord Jesus, thank you. Let's eat the bread together. Paul goes on to write that in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul continues with this commentary after what Jesus said. He writes, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he hold the cup up before the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for your shed blood. Jesus, as we hold up this cup, we thank you again for your obedience, for your suffering, for your death, and for putting others before yourself. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Let's partake together. our time, I believe that some of us will want prayer today, whether it's a need in your life or there's an area of obedience, suffering, or even death. Maybe it has something to do with keeping others first. Whatever the case may be, whatever your need is, as we conclude our service, Callie is going to lead us in worship. And as she does the prayer team, we have a prayer team at City Church that's going to come forward to pray with you and to pray for you. And as they move forward, if you need prayer in any area of your life, I want to encourage you to step out from where you're at and to begin to come forward for prayer. Because what we know is that Christ is resurrected from the dead. That he conquered the ultimate thing that all of us face, which is death. And if he has conquered that, he can bring life into whatever you're facing. So if you would like prayer this morning, we invite you to come forward. There's people that are here now and they're moving forward to pray with you and to pray for you. Callie will lead us in worship and I'll come back in just a few moments to dismiss us with God's blessing. Let's worship together. The life you gave, your body was broken, your love poured out, you bled and you died for me there on the cross, as you breathed your last as you were crucified, you gave it all. 
Now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And may he give you peace. God bless you. If you want to slip out quietly, you can. If you would like to remain in an attitude of prayer and worship, we, we invite you to do that. Look forward to seeing you next Sunday morning. It's Easter Sunday. Please plan on inviting a friend. God bless you.
Oh 